Heavenly Father, Father, our lives are ruled by patterns. And in fact, Lord, we know from your word that you have established in this world patterns that demonstrate your faithfulness to us. The seasons, for example, you tell us are, are patterns that we can know mean that you are faithful and reliable in your provision and in the, in the way you've designed this earth, it reflects that. Or the fact that the oceans do not pass beyond the barriers of the shore, as you tell us in Psalms, that these things are evidence, Father, that you are in control and you have established things according to your will and that they serve certain purposes. And then, Father, you also explain to us about who we are in Scripture, and we see things about our sin and, and the fact that humanity is forever enslaved to sin apart from your grace, and that that sin rules us, and that that sin creates patterns in our lives, things that are destructive. And, Lord, we all know that, for we've seen it in ourselves, we remember it from day to day as we notice our, our lives returning to the same things over and over, things we we know better than to have as part of our life. And yet there it is. As your, as your Apostle Paul spoke in Romans 7, we keep doing the things we don't want to do. Father, that's the book of Judges in a nutshell that you've given, it to, given us to study. Father, this book of men and women who lived long ago and in a faraway place, but yet they're so much like us, at least in these ways. They know, but they will not do. They are disciplined and they repent and then they return to their sin. And yet, Father, there you are. The text of Scripture reminds us of your faithfulness. You're there. We see you in the pages of this book working throughout the times in which they sinned. You did not turn away. Even when they were in their times of desperate struggle against an enemy that you brought in, even when they were at their low points, Father, you were still there. For you tell us that you were working to discipline them for a period of time. Father, I pray that each of us in our individual struggles would see something in this book over the course of our study and perhaps today in which we understand that you have orchestrated our lives so that we will learn things we need to learn and that even in our darkest moments you are there. Not, a, not in some passive sense, not simply watching from afar, but in control and orchestrating all the events of our lives so that we will learn not only from those things you've taught us in your word, but also from those mistakes we make, which you then can use to teach us further. Help us see the pattern, but most of all, Father, help us to break out of it with your will, by your spirit. Help us to step aside from the cycle that may dominate in our life and to live in a new way. And let the book of Judges show us perhaps the way to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's meet the third judge in the book of Judges. This next judge is far better known than the first two that we've studied so far. Perhaps most of all because this third judge is a woman and the only one in the book of Judges. And you all know the patriarchal nature of the society in which Israel existed, the times in which they lived. And we also know the scriptures teachings on male headship. And given those things, it seems quite remarkable that God would choose to raise up a woman as the judge for this period in history. So as we study this account, you'll notice we're going to take moments along the way to consider what it means. What is the significance of God choosing to judge Israel through a woman in this period of their history? And furthermore, the story of Deborah is longer than the first two judges put together. So we're starting to see now the book delve more deeply into the circumstances of the people in this story. 
And that also is my excuse for why I will not finish the chapter today, though you may have noticed I've been finishing them more or less one a week, and I did that at the risk of spoiling you. I'm going to correct that mistake today. Despite all of those unique qualities or whatever unique qualities we'll see, there's one thing that will remain consistent, and that is this pattern I keep referring to, this cycle, the cycle of sin, discipline, repentance, and restoration, and then rinse, repeat. That's what we will see throughout. There's not going to be a surprise there for you at any point in this book of Judges. We will see this cycle repeat, and it will again today. And by now you've become, I hope, familiar enough with it that you'll spot all of the telltale phrases that tell us when the cycle is stepping into a new phase. And you'll notice one right up front here in verse 1. Read with me chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 to open. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sesera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So notice the cycle opening up in its characteristic form. Chapter 4 has begun now with the life of our second judge, Ehud, coming to an end, and it introduces with his death the next cycle in the culture. Now, Ehud lived a fairly long life, and according to chapter 3, he oversaw a period of 80 years of relative obedience within the nation of Israel, and as a result of their obedience to the covenant, and I use that term loosely, of course, we're not saying they were sinless, we're just saying that as a culture generally... They were following the law. They were attempting to do as God asked them to do. As a result of that obedience, what was the result? Eighty years of peace. In chapter 3, verse 30, Samuel said the land was, quote, undisturbed. Now, what he means is the Lord didn't bring a disturbance into the land. And, of course, the reason he didn't do so was as a result of their obedience to the covenant. So the peacefulness they experienced was a result of Ehud's leadership bringing the people to a point of obedience. There's a little equation emerging there that you can perhaps write in the margins of your Bible if you take notes. And that equation is this. Obedience equals peace. Obedience equals peace. Now, when you set your mind on obeying the Lord, he brings peace in the sense that he will not disturb us with some chastising work, with some visitor into our lives one way or another, that has as its purpose disciplining us. You won't get discipline if you're in obedience, generally speaking. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be trials. So before you overreach here and think I'm saying your life will be all grins and giggles, that's not the promise of Scripture. The Apostle Paul was very much in the Lord's will as he did his work as an apostle. He was a good example for us of obedience. And yet we know he faced many trials. From a world's point of view, his life was not peaceful, But from a biblical point of view, God was not disturbing him. God was giving him opportunity. Trials are a sign that we are invading darkness, that we are disturbing the enemy. So a trial is the result of us disturbing the enemy. But when you disobey, the Lord disturbs you. And it's all the difference in the world between those two experiences. If you've ever wondered, how do you know the difference? Let me assure you, you will know the difference. Every child of God knows when they are suffering because of their own disobedience as opposed to when they are suffering for the name of Christ. There is no comparison between the two. In the first case, 
you're going to feel the conviction of your sin. You're going to feel the weight of that mistake bearing down on you. And when the consequences follow, there'll be a part of you, maybe not one you want to admit, but there'll be a part of you that can draw the dots together because the spirit in you is going to be making that clear. And you're going to see, ah, here's what comes when I do that thing I shouldn't do or when I say that thing I shouldn't say. I see God letting me experience a little of the consequences to teach me. You'll see it. You'll hear it. You'll feel it. But in the second case, if the world is impinging upon you because of your faith, if God is allowing a trial to invade your life in that sense, because of your obedience, in other words, you won't feel the conviction. You won't feel the guilt. There won't be something pressing down on you. In fact, Scripture says you will have a peace that passes all understanding. These two experiences are so different that there's not any chance you'll mistake one for the other. Now, in our self-deception, we might mistake one for the other, but it's not because we can't tell the difference. It's because we don't want to recognize the difference. So Israel has known peace for 80 years because under a man's direction, they were able to, for the most part, obey a covenant. But now this man has died. And as we see, the sad refrain kicks in again. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you remember this means the nation has gone back to idol worship, right? We covered that last week. This phrase always means, in the context of judges, returning to idol worship, among other bad things, I'm sure. And apparently, Jewish history was not a required course in Israelite schools, because if they'd known anything about their past, it wouldn't have been hard for them to see, wait a minute, we go this route, something bad's going to happen. But they've forgotten the pattern of their forefathers, and as the saying goes, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, and sure enough, They do. But we know this is more than just a matter of their knowledge of history. This is a spiritual issue. This is the evil in their hearts taking control so that as soon as that judge is gone, I like to think of it like an engine. Ehud is the governor on the engine of sin and evil in the nation of Israel, at least until he died. And then the governor is released and the engine races ahead again into evil, which leads to step two. The Lord brings discipline to his people. And yet again, he does it by means of an oppressor. This time he raises up a man named Jabin, a king in Canaan. This is probably not his actual name. This is probably a dynastic name. In other words, like Pharaoh isn't actually the name of a man or Caesar isn't actually the name of a man. It's a title. Jabin is actually a title. He's a Canaanite king ruling from a place called Hazor. If you have a map, this is a town in the northern end of Israel near the Hula Valley around the sea, just north of the Sea of Galilee. He rules from that region, controlling a good portion of Judea from the northern end. And then we're also introduced to the commander of his army, Sisera. And he lives in a town that's just a few miles away. So he's also in this same general region. That tells us that the source of Canaanite strength was in the north. And their military power, we're told, comes out of the fact that they possess all of these chariots, these iron chariots. You've seen the movie Ben-Hur, or maybe you haven't, but you might want to go see it. It's not a bad movie, but you've probably seen chariots in other movies. Chariots were a particularly powerful weapon of war in that day because you could put two guys on the back, one or two guys, put arrows and bows in their hand while moving very fast with a horse pulling this thing. They could move back and forth in front of a line of troops shooting with great precision at the enemy that was in the troop ranks. And yet because they're moving so fast, no one can hit them. Plus, they're behind a chariot that's got a shield in front of them. So two men with a horse and a chariot can do a lot of damage very quickly to a stationary force that can't fight back very effectively. It was a very powerful weapon, and it made a big difference in battle. The Bible says there were 900 here. Josephus, when he writes about this period of Jewish history, he reports that Jabin had 300,000 soldiers, infantry, 
He had 10,000 horsemen and he had 3,000 chariots. Now, Josephus is not necessarily always correct, and I'm not saying he is, but if we assume for a moment he is roughly correct, then it's interesting that the Bible has chosen to select from among the 3,000 a specific number to highlight in the text, 900. The number nine stands for judgment. So it would seem as though, in the way that the text is written, that these chariots are a representation of God's judgment against the people of Israel for their sin. And with these chariots, Jabin oppresses the people, we're told, for 20 years. And you notice the period of oppression keeps rising here. It has now gone from 18 in the second case to 20 now in the third case. Keeps rising. God's discipline keeps rising with each new turn of the wheel here. So in verse 3, we have the nation now back in oppression here. And so they come to the point where they recognize, you know, we should repent so that we can get out from underneath the thumb of this guy, Jabin. So they cry out and the Lord comes to rescue them. And once again, you find the endless faithfulness in God. This, this mercy that never seems to run out. You might think that after a couple of these experiences, he would just say, you know what, forget it. But he has a covenant and he won't go back on his word. So he returns, he responds, and he raises up a judge to free the people from the enemy. Look at verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Benanoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. So now we're introduced to the third judge, to Deborah, and she's called a prophetess. In the Bible, you'll find a number of women called prophetess across both the Old and the New Testament. Besides Deborah, Moses' wife, Miriam, is called a prophetess back in Exodus. Then there's Isaiah's wife. We don't really know her, but she's called a prophetess in the book of Isaiah. There's Huldah. She's the prophetess to King Josiah in the southern kingdom. And then in the New Testament, we hear of Anna as a prophetess, and then Philip's Four daughters are all said to be prophetess, so we don't hear much more about them. The point is, God will on occasion, if not routinely, use women as he does men as his spokesperson, as someone who is gifted in prophecy and can speak prophetically. Now, I'm not saying this is still present in the church today. I'm simply speaking historically that these things were happening at various times. The name Deborah, it means bee, as in like a honeybee. Her name is similar in Hebrew to the word for speak or the word word, which would reflect her role as a prophetess. So it would suggest she's speaking truth. She's imparting confidence to the people, inspiring them to victory based on what the word of God has told them. Now, notice that she's doing this even while the nation is under oppression. She's already in that role serving in this way. Apparently, the people of Israel, though, do not possess the military might or the confidence to rise up against Jabin's forces. She is not a military leader. The first two judges were men who, through military might, accomplished what God wanted them to accomplish in the culture. But she's not doing that. She is ruling almost like a wise person on a mount, 
people coming to her and seeking her judgment concerning matters. And she is ruling because she has the word of the Lord to offer. So now let's consider what does it mean that God has raised up a woman in this situation to do what Deborah does, to be a judge? Well, first of all, the judge is not the leader of all the people. Even when they have temporary authority in some context, they act primarily as a spokesperson for God. And in her case, a prophetess. They don't supplant the leadership in the tribes. Even when Ehud and Othniel were there, they weren't running the tribes. They weren't Moses. They're not like King David. They judged. They adjudicated. And as they made these decisions, the ones who would carry out their authority were the ones who ran the tribes, the the leaders over tribes, the ones who had the eldership within tribes. And then at a family level, the men in the homes, the patriarchal leadership in the homes. That structure has never gone away. And it doesn't really matter in that case who's imparting the word of the Lord, who's making the judgments, because at the end of the day, the authority to carry it out must happen through the normal structures. Secondly, judges enforce the law by calling the people to follow the Lord obediently, but not by forcing the outcome. There's no evidence in Scripture that the judges were the ones enforcing it personally as they walked around the land. They couldn't have done it if they had wanted to. There's just one of them. It all depended on the normal leadership structures in the culture acting in according to what they were being told to do from this judge or else it fell apart. And then finally, the last thing to remember, Israel is a theocracy in this part of history. The one ruling them is God. God has the reins of power. No human leader possessed authority over the people. No man, no woman. That has to await for the time of kings. So in the story of Deborah, you're looking at God using a woman to speak to Israel and to compel them into obedience with his covenant. But he rules them directly through men and women throughout the nation. Now, having said all that, though, God choosing a woman still raises a central question. Why didn't he raise a man, given that that is the predominant pattern of Scripture? Is there some message, in other words, in the fact that a woman was raised up as the one to trigger this movement out of a time of oppression and back into a time in which they are free? And I think the answer is yes. Throughout this chapter, in fact, into the next chapter as well, chapters four and five, you will see in these two chapters women featured prominently, not just Deborah, but others as well, all of them acting when men would not. All of them doing what you would have otherwise expected men in the culture to do. To put it simply, the men of Israel are AWOL in these two chapters. They are reluctant to act, or they're just downright ungodly. And in their place, in the gap, you find women. It's a commentary from Samuel on the state of Israel's culture that women are stepping up to compel righteousness among the people, while the men are rarely seen to take charge in that way. Now, both men and women have a role in promoting and enforcing godliness among God's people. But when that burden falls disproportionately upon women, it's a sign that things are not going well in that culture. Isaiah, for example, in his book, he insults Israel's enemies by calling them children and saying women rule over them. He uses that pejoratively as a way of indicting the enemies of Israel as being weak. Because in a patriarchal culture, it is a strong indictment when you say that women are the only ones who are willing to assume the reins of leadership in the culture. It's an indictment of the men, of course. Not that the the woman is doing something wrong by assuming the leadership. What we're saying is that her assuming the leadership is an indictment on the rest of the culture that there weren't men doing the same with her. And when the time came to rescue the land from the 
enemies, the Lord told Deborah to call a man to battle. And Deborah calls this man Barak. Now, Barak is a man who is already in the military. He's already a military warrior. Uh, he comes from the territory of Naphtali, which is in the same general region in which the Canaanite king is ruling. So he's a man who knows where the ground knows the ground where the battle will be won. He's being called because he's familiar with that region. His name means lightning. And I think that's prophetic in light of how he's going to win the battle when you see it happen later. He meets up with Deborah. And when he comes, Deborah tells him it's time now. The Lord has said it's time now that we be delivered from our enemy. Go up to the north. Enlist 10,000 men, take them from the two tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and you're going to fight against the commander of his army, and you're going to bring them out to the place of the river Kishon where you're going to defeat them. The reason he picked those two tribes is those two tribes are the tribes that immediately surround the area in which Hazor is, Mount Hazor. So it makes sense. You're taking men who know that area who are already up there. You're bringing them to battle. And remember when they walked into land under Joshua, they were told now after Joshua had defeated the enemies of the land and had moved out, he told them, OK, now you guys go out and finish this work. Go to your respective areas, the tribes and complete the battle. Well, this is God insisting that those two tribes do what they're supposed to do and defeat the enemy that's amongst them in their part of the land. Now, the Lord declared, you're going to win this battle. The message is not you need to go up there and figure out a way to win. The message was not. I want you to give it your best shot and let's see what happens. Do you have a good plan, Barak? Because we're all scratching our heads. Maybe you have a way in which we could do this. No, this is God declaring to Barak through Deborah. You will win because I will win it for you. Just go up and claim your victory. That's the sense of it. Look, Deborah says, go there now. Don't even think about it. And she says, the Lord says, I will draw out the enemy and I will give him into your hands. You cannot get more assurance than that. Barak knows he's going to win because the Lord said he's going to. So you would think that that would be enough for Barak. Verse eight. Then Barak said to her, well, if you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. All right, so Barak turns to Deborah and he says, I'll tell you what, I'll go, but only if you go with me. <laughs> if you want to be generous, you could say that Barak assume that God might want to talk to him some more and he wants to keep his mouthpiece with him so that no matter where he goes, whatever God has to tell him, he'll have the woman with him so that he can know what God wants. I mean, if you want to be generous, you go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt on that. I'm not so generous. Because, frankly, friends, if the Lord wanted to say something more to Barak, he wouldn't have needed Deborah to do it, right? It's not like he's constrained to Deborah. He could have found him many ways to tell Barak. I, that has nothing to do with it. The real reason Barak insists on Deborah is because he lacks faith in the power of what God has said. He lacks faith in God's word. Deborah is his insurance policy. Deborah is his guarantee of success because Barak knows Deborah is a prophetess, which means he knows that God is working through Deborah, which means he knows that Deborah and God are tight right now. So if I'm going to go into battle, I want to have Deborah right here because I'm assuming that if I'm going to be right there with Deborah, he's not going to let me lose because Deborah's there and he's not going to let Deborah get captured. He's not going to let Deborah get hurt. She's my insurance policy. She's my little security blanket. That's what he's saying. This is a serious lack of trust in the Lord. It would appear as though what Barak is thinking in his head is the Lord's going to throw me under a bus. He said, go up there to battle and then I'm going to get killed. 
And then God's going to be in heaven going, hee, 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 we got Derek. I mean, it's all bizarre. It's, it's absurd to even think that God would do that. But that's the only conclusion you can come to if Barak is told point blank, go and you'll have victory. And he has 10,000 men at his disposal. But the missing piece to success is I need one woman with me. And many wives would say, heck, yes, you definitely. <laughs> let me tell you, that's how it works. I know. But in terms of military tactics, what are you going to do with one woman? It's, it's really about a security blanket. In a very real sense, Deborah is Barak's idol in the way an idol is often substituted for faith in God. And in this account, Barak becomes a poster child for all that was wrong in Jewish society as a whole during this period of their history. Women exhibiting courage, women following God's word as they should, but men, spiritual wimps. The men of Israel weren't listening, apparently. They weren't obeying. It was apparent here with Barak. Not even the ones who are anointed by God and commissioned by God and promised success by God are willing to go up with his personal assurances. They're so timid, they're so doubting in the word of God that they stand back and they say to Deborah, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And you notice how he finished the sentence. You don't go, I don't go. Well, God just told you to go. I don't care. This is the third cycle in this pattern that we've studied. And as before, Israel sinned, they're punished, they cry out. Now it's time to restore them. But what's different? What's different here is the deteriorating condition of the society in Israel has come now to the point where, unlike in the first two cases, you can't find someone to answer the call of God's word anymore. Jewish society has become so weak spiritually that it's hard to find someone to go up against the enemy. With Ehud... You had this unlikely one-handed hero. He's a ninja. He just charges right in. He takes care of business. But notice now you have the opposite situation. I find this really interesting. Between Ehud and Barak, Ehud, one arm and nobody with him. Barak, 10,000 men who know the ground, and he won't go unless he has a woman. It's a completely reverse situation between those two moments. That's an indication of what's going on in society. For a patriarchal culture... There could be few greater indictments than this, that a mighty warrior is too afraid to go into battle unless he has a woman accompany him. Now, when those appointed by God to lead abdicate their responsibility, people are in trouble. Men and women both have roles in God's economy. Neither role is dispensable, certainly. But when men go AWOL, bad things happen. Bad things happen in the church. Bad things happen in the home and ultimately in society. In this case, the men of Israel had forgotten what it meant to follow the Lord and to lead his people. They did not trust in his word, and they couldn't even find the strength to obey when he revealed himself. And that resulted in the decay that brought them into this place to begin with. This is not to say women can't be leaders. This is not to say that they shouldn't be a source of spiritual strength among God's people. On the contrary, spiritually strong women are a great blessing to God's people. And we certainly don't want the women of God to be weaker than they might otherwise be able to be. We're not asking anyone to dumb down their leadership or their spiritual strength. Far from it. What we want, though, is the men of God to match and even exceed the spiritual strength of the women in the church or wherever, and to do so as spiritual leaders within that context. When men shrink back from that responsibility, it forces, in many cases, women to step up and to fill that gap And in so doing, they become an indictment on that culture. 
for the fact that men won't do as they're called to do. Sometimes when my wife and I have opportunity to counsel couples, we'll find couples in which this pattern is in play, in which the men are spiritually weak, the women are a little stronger, the women are trying to get their husband to move forward with them, taking the husband and bringing him along, which is double duty on her part. She not only is leading the family, she's trying to help her husband get up to speed with where she is. And in trying to explain the problem to these couples, one of the things we'll tell them that it should be the case that both parties in that marriage are running as fast as they can towards spiritual maturity, and it's a race to see who can get there first. If you're a husband and your wife is ahead of you, that should be an incentive to you to work a lot harder than you're working right now because they should not be ahead of you. That is not to say you're supposed to tell your wife, slow down. In fact, wives, if you are ahead, go faster. But the incentive should be for the husband to say, I don't want to be behind my wife in spiritual maturity. That's an indictment of me. And it's ultimately going to be a cause for great problems in the marriage and in the family, whether you see them yet or not. Men are designed by God to be spiritual leaders in the home. Again, not to the exclusion of women being spiritually strong or leaders, but as a complement to that and as an inspiration and leadership for the whole group. We understand what's commanded of us, but we just can't put it into practice. We're like Barak. We make an excuse for why we can't actually do what we know we're supposed to do. And men in particular, I'm talking to you. What saint hasn't hesitated at some point to obey the word of God because we had fear or doubt or selfishness? We all have those moments in which we shrink back from something God's asking us to do because of these emotions. Because even if you're not the world's best Bible student, let's all be honest, we know exactly what we're supposed to do most of the time. And in the broad strokes of life, we already know. It's not about biblical knowledge that says stay away from sin. It's not about biblical insight to know you're supposed to love the Lord, discipline your body, make other disciples, sacrifice for the sake of the Lord. I mean, these things are not complicated concepts. And yet, how often do we do something contrary to that? And how many times have we refused to rise up and change that something in our life that's impeding our progress because we just don't want to change? How often do we do that? How often do we just say no? Well, maybe we've even offered some of Barak's excuses. We say yes, but we put conditions on that obedience. That's what he did, in effect. I mean, he could have just said, no, I'm not going. But he didn't say that. He said, I'll go, but here's my condition. We tell the Lord we need a guarantee. We need a crutch or some kind. We tell ourselves that we're too weak. We tell ourselves we need more time to obey, more time to comply. I know I need to break that habit, or I know I need to forgive that person. But I can't do this on my own. I'm too weak. Or, I'll make that change, but Lord, you've got to give me more time. Or, I know what the Word says, but my situation is different. Or even, I'm going to do it my way, I don't care what the Lord says, and I don't care what you think. Those are all implicit phrases in what he was saying to Deborah. So let's consider how the Lord responded to Barak's excuses. Speaking through Deborah, he said, go. He didn't say, think about it. He didn't say, I have an offer. Why don't you give this some thought? Come back to me when you've thought about it. He says, go, which means the timing has already been set. There's no more need for you to think about it. So excuses count for nothing. They are simply another way of saying no. That's the Lord's standard for obedience, by the way. When the Lord tells you what it is he asks you to do out of his word, the idea is that you do it now and you do it continually. Obedience isn't saying maybe or later or yes, but it's about saying yes. It's trusting that the Lord's commands are better than our own ideas because he knows the future and we don't. When you face the choice to do what he wants versus what you want, and inside of you you say to yourself, 
I can't do what he wants because what I want looks better to me. What you haven't considered in that moment is, yeah, that's what you think now. But what is it going to be like 10 years from now or five years from now because you took your path versus his path? See, the difference between you and God, among other things, is he sees the end of that path. You don't. He's saying, you know, Steve, get off that one and get on this one because you don't know what's coming. And I do. And you need to be on this path. I'm sitting here at a moment saying, well, from what I can see, this looks better. That's the problem. That's all I can see. The Lord has told us what is right in his word because he knows the end of that road is a better outcome than the one you'll choose for yourself. So ask yourself, where in your life are you offering excuses or delays instead of just doing what the Lord has commanded you to do? And if you're the person who says, I know, but I'm weak, I can't do it. Well, as I said, join the club. Barak couldn't win the battle in his own strength either. That's why God didn't say to him, go up there and figure this out on your own. He says, I will give the enemy into your hand. And the same is true for you and I. The Lord knows your weaknesses. He knows it's hard to say no to yourself, to forgive another person or to discipline your flesh or to make sacrifices. It's not news to him that those things are very difficult to do. But the Lord says, if you go into this process with me, I will win the battle for you. In Luke 18, 27, Jesus said the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. That's the whole point. Commit to obedience. Friends, here's a challenge. If you think I'm wrong, okay, but you can prove it to yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. How about commit to obedience on something that you've stubbornly refused to commit to and then watch the Lord show up when you need him to deliver you from that temptation, from that trial, from that thought or action, etc. I didn't say it's going to be easy. Scripture doesn't say it's going to be easy. But if the Lord commanded it, then he plans to give you success through it. Test him on that. So let's look at what Deborah says. Deborah says, I'll go with you. She's not happy, but she agrees to it, probably because she figured if she doesn't agree to it, she's not going to be able to get him to go. And then she gives him another word, a rebuke. She says that when Israel does win this victory, it's going to come not by Barak's hands, but at the hands of a woman. And at first you may be thinking she's talking about herself, but as you'll see later in the story, it's not talking about her. She's talking about another woman. A very unlikely hero, a woman who's going to win this victory precisely because Barak said that unless he had a woman involved, he wasn't going to be able to to do what the Lord commanded him. And so the answer is, okay, fine, I'll give you the woman, but it'll be to your own condemnation. Look what you're witnessing here. God uses a woman to call a man into battle. Then that man who is an accomplished warfighter won't go unless a woman goes with him. So to mock his lack of faith, God says, okay, well, the victory will be won by a woman. Barak is going to get no honor at all for the result. No one's going to be hailing him as a hero in the streets of Israel as a result of his timidity. The Lord is going to see his purposes met. You can't frustrate his purposes. And so you can either join with him and you can receive honor and blessing for having been obedient, or you can watch others serve him in your place. They will receive the honor instead. That's really the choice. It's not about whether the work gets done or not. And that truth applies even to areas of personal sin. When we say no to God, yes to ourselves, we are not frustrating God's purpose in the greater scheme of things, but we are potentially disqualifying ourselves for the blessing that comes from obedience, whether here in the world we live in now or ultimately in eternity. And the Lord in our place will raise up others to do the work we were not willing to go do. And I'm talking here about sanctification. You know, quite often, God needs you to fix something about who you are so that then you'll be in a better position to go do the thing he wants you to do. And we want to go run and go do before we're willing to actually be 
the Christian that we're supposed to be. And Scripture makes clear that he'll use us whenever he chooses, however he chooses, but he delights to use those who are like him so that when the work is done, he is glorified. If you're not willing to make the change in who you are, who's to say God has any use for you in what he might want to accomplish? Let's be the people who love the Lord so much that we make obedience our greatest goal and then not be a generation in which our men are afraid to lead. Not being so short-sighted that we believe the lie that getting our own way now is better than what God may have for us in eternity. Heavenly Father, I ask, Father, that when each of us consider what we've heard this morning, that you will speak to us personally about things in our life where we may not be in obedience with you, uh, with you yet, doing as you called us to do. And that uh, you will bring our minds back to this story, perhaps, or to something else that you want us to understand from Scripture. That it will give us confidence again to think differently about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and better, Father, how we can live according to your will and serve you better. We take inspiration from the fact that that there are men who are so ill-equipped to do what you called them to do. Men like Ehud. But yet you could use them in a powerful way. And then as well, Father, we consider men like Barak who had the potential to do so many great things and to obey without a word. And yet they doubted and they they made decisions, Father, that, that reflected a lack of faith. I pray, Father, we would not follow in that pattern. We would be more like Ehud and others who have gone before. That we'd have courage to take steps when necessary to obey. And, Lord, I thank you that you raise up men and women who can speak not only the truth to us, but represent it in their lives. And we thank you, Lord, for their examples. Let us never discount anyone or overlook their contribution or their importance, not for who they are, for in the body of Christ, Father, we are all the same from your point of view. We all are members of your body. But even as we acknowledge that truth, we also acknowledge what you tell us, that men are important, that their leadership is important, that their guidance and, and spiritual maturity is important in the family and in the church. I pray, Father, that every man would take on that personal responsibility and be challenged to be that leader where they may not be and to uh, to do it with love and with mercy and to do it, Father, with patience. To not lord over, but to hold up those in their family and those around them in the church. Let us be those who would uh, reflect that proper and loving approach to leading and let our let the wives and and uh, mothers and sisters and daughters in our fellowship challenge us by their spiritual maturity to race along with them and all of us father as we mature into the stature of of christ we pray this in jesus name amen